Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to Searching for It. This episode today is going to be the second in a little two-part series on the psychedelic experience. There's so much to talk about here, so many areas in which you see psychedelia in the world. I mean, if you've ever listened to Pink Floyd, if you've ever been to a music festival, literally if you've ever used an iPhone, it's quite likely that none of these things would have existed without psychedelic drugs and the culture that surrounds them. You might be surprised about the iPhone part, but Steve Jobs once said, Taking LSD was a profound experience, one of the most important things in my life. LSD shows you that there's another side to the coin. It reinforced my sense of what was important. There are, of course, a lot of psychedelic drugs besides LSD, and a lot of things you can associate with psychedelia besides drugs in general. Last time round, for example, we focused our attention on the psychedelic effect that the Grateful Dead and other psychedelic artists can have on the listeners through their music. But today we're going to look at the directly psychedelic effect that psychedelic drugs can have, particularly LSD, and whether there are any lessons we can take from them. When you hear someone talking about taking a psychedelic drug or taking acid, one of the first things that will likely come to your mind is an image of crazy visuals of tie-dye shirts, vibrant colours and geometric patterns. But I think it's a bit of a misconception that the LSD experience is all about these visual effects. Like, you take it and see pink elephants and everything looks all colourful and trippy. There's an extent to which this is true. When you take a high enough dose of acid, you'll likely experience some hallucinations, but you don't tend to actually see things that aren't there. It tends to be more like an altering of what you already do see. So there's no pink elephants or purple unicorns, but you may well see the objects around you moving, morphing, breathing and melting. You'll often see complex geometric patterns as your senses become heightened, and assuming your trip goes well, it's really common to experience a profound sense of beauty in the world. Although it's worth pointing out that the LSD experience is different for everyone, and some people will experience these effects to a greater or weaker degree. I've recently been reading up on Jean-Paul Sartre, and hope to record an episode on his existentialism in the not-too-distant future, but one thing I was surprised to learn about him was that, having taken another psychedelic drug, mescaline, he began seeing a fleet of little crabs following him around, not just when he was tripping, but for years afterwards too. The point here being that the drug-induced hallucinations are definitely different for everyone. But having said that, while people do have these hallucinations, they're not what's at the essence of LSD, they're not what the psychedelic experience is all about. There's a writer, Aldous Huxley, who you might know for writing the novel Brave New World. He also wrote a fascinating essay called The Doors of Perception, which was all about his experiments with mescaline. And in this essay, he described the visual effects, in his words, as cheap and trivial. They're not the important bits. If you get all bogged down in the way that everything around you looks all colourful and kind of funny, you're probably not having what you'd call a psychedelic experience. Instead, what's significant about the psychedelic experience on psychedelic drugs is the sense in which the way you experience the world becomes heightened and altered. In short, this might mean that visually you see the world in this altered kind of state, but on a wider level, this relates to what we were talking about in the last episode when we described the psychedelic experience. As you might remember, the likes of Timothy Leary and Alan Watts, they described the psychedelic experience as a journey or a transformation to new states of consciousness. It's a new way of being and a new way of perceiving yourself and your place in the universe, not just weird and wonderful trippy effects. But I am aware that describing the psychedelic experience in this way, in the way that we described it in the last episode as an altered state of consciousness, 
It tells us something, that it's quite different from being sober, but it does still leave a lot of questions unanswered that we weren't able to completely answer in the last episode. I mean, what is this state of consciousness actually like, and how is it that we experience the world when we're on LSD? We'll come on to try and answer these questions in different ways a bit later on. But first, there's a really interesting insight from the author Tom Wolfe, who tried to shine some light on this question. Wolfe talks about the psychedelic experience, in terms of your perception of yourself within the world, so the relationship between you, the subject of the experience, and the world around you. And Wolfe says, The distinction between the subjective and the objective disappears. The distinction between the I and the not I. Or to put this in slightly less abstract terms, when undergoing a psychedelic experience, the borders between yourself and the rest of the world dissolve, and you see the world as a kind of single flowing entity, with yourself immersed in the heart of it. But there's a sense in which using the word self almost misrepresents Wolf's position, because his whole point is that this whole distinction between what you used to call yourself and the rest of the world no longer exists, and it all really is just one thing. And this is a really important theme within the psychedelic experience, particularly in the context of psychedelic drugs like LSD, because one of the most common reported effects is that people feel this almost divine sense of oneness between themselves and the rest of the universe, as if, as I say, the borders between themselves and everyone else just seem arbitrary and superficial. And these effects can actually be long-lasting, far beyond the end of the trip. There's been some really interesting research performed recently that suggests that taking LSD can actually increase your sense of empathy, which you'd imagine comes from this sense of oneness between yourself and others, rejecting the distinction between the self and the other. But to take a step back from LSD just for a moment, now we've taken a look at what kind of a drug LSD is and what kind of effects it has on the user, I want us to look at a story that Tom Wolfe, the guy we mentioned just a moment ago, tells about the culture surrounding LSD in 1960s America. And I think this will set the scene nicely for looking at the influence and the significance of psychedelic drugs going forward in this episode. What Tom Wolfe was most known for was writing a fascinating book called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test which I massively recommend to anyone interested in the content of this episode. And this book basically picks up from where we left off in the last episode, which was back around the time that the Grateful Dead were forming in 1960s San Francisco. And for those of you who end up reading Wolf's book, you'll see that the book is essentially a crossover episode between all the previous episodes in this podcast. This book, which is supposed to be 100% real, begins by exploring the journeys and the adventures of this crazy bunch of characters called the Merry Pranksters. These guys were basically a bunch of acid heads, led by Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Kesey was probably the last guy you'd expect to lead an acid revolution. He's voted most likely to succeed in high school, he was a champion wrestler when he went to university in Oregon, and by all accounts was a pretty straight-edge guy. He was married by the age of 20 to his lifelong and Christian wife, and Kesey also professed to have got high on acid before he'd ever even got drunk. And it wasn't through any kind of act of rebellion or anything like that that led Kesey to take his first sit of acid. The story, funnily enough, actually begins in 1959 with Project MK Ultra, which were a series of super-secretive and controversial experiments run by the CIA. Round about that time, conversations were just starting to spring up about the possible uses of psychedelic drugs. The hallucinogenic properties of LSD had only been discovered about 15 years ago. And in line with this train of thought the CIA began signing up participants to take all kinds of psychedelic drugs, LSD, mescaline, DMT, all handed out by the state, 
particularly with a grand ambition that these kind of drugs could, in theory, be used for mind control and to extract state secrets from captured Russian spies. Kesey was one of these volunteers, which is ironic in the sense that by the end of this story, as you'll see later on, he'd become an outlaw and a threat to the establishment through his advocacy of psychedelic drugs. But he was given his first hit by the CIA themselves. And round about the same time, Kesey was working as a night aide in the psychiatric ward of a local hospital. And it was both his experiences as the subject of these experiments, and also as the observer in these hospitals, that provided his inspiration for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But by 1964, Kesey had abandoned his writing career to the visions of LSD. He'd bought an old school bus and gathered his band of merry pranksters to go tripping around the USA in both senses of the word. Kesey had kitted out the bus with a working kitchen, with beds, and spattered with colours and psychedelic imagery all around. And this bus trip ended up being hugely influential throughout the rest of the 60s and beyond. Mick Brown, in a Daily Telegraph article, described this as the most famous bus trip in history, and depending on your perspective, either makes Kesey a counterculture legend, or just as having tarnished a promising literary career. But the reason why the bus trip was so influential is that, just as with Kerouac's explorations in episodes 2 and 3 of this podcast, the bus trip was best understood as an experiment. And just as Kesey had had his first LSD experience as part of a CIA-led trial, with the bus trip, he himself turned the experimenter to find out how far he could push the mind-expanding properties of LSD and where he could take human consciousness. So the core band of about 14 or so merry pranksters, with a few others coming and going, drove across the states with an abundance of acid and energy. Literally everything on this trip was designed to push the psychedelic experience further, and fittingly, further was also the name of the bus. Everything was there for the sake of trippiness. You had the psychedelic imagery on the outside of the bus. They were all dressed up in crazy uniforms and colours. Dayglow was the theme of the time. And they'd have a few pranksters sat atop the bus as they drove past, blowing bubbles, they were shouting, they were goading the public. They were provocative but never confrontational. And nobody even had to work. Kesey was able to finance the whole operation through his earnings from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And they were free to just explore this new psychedelic experience they'd found and flaunt it in the faces of the startled public across America. And it's on this further bus trip that we meet the first character in this crossover episode. The driver of the bus across America was none other than Neil Cassidy, who was, of course, the inspiration for the character Dean Moriarty in Jack Kerouac's On the Road, which we looked at in episode two of this podcast. Cassidy was possibly at his wildest at this period of time. He was constantly on speed, not that he needed it, to multiply his already frantic pace of life, and by all accounts this didn't make for the safest road trips. And in fact, on their bus trip, the Merry Pranksters actually set up a meeting with Kerouac himself, and they also stopped over at Timothy Leary's Acid Hub in New York for a short period of time. But unfortunately, neither meeting went particularly well. There was a lot of hype on further about their meeting with Kerouac. The way they saw it was the opportunity for the baton to be passed from the Beats, to the counterculture rebels to continue pushing America forward. But they were at completely different stages in their lives and in their journeys. I mean, Kerouac was 12 years older than Kesey at this point in time, and accounts of their meeting suggest that Kerouac was quite frankly overwhelmed by the explosion of energy and colour that the pranksters brought into the Manhattan apartment. Kerouac sat in an armchair in a corner of the room quietly for an hour, not really talking to anyone and left before a single word had been exchanged between himself and Kesey. And coincidentally, 
The two of them actually shared the same literary agent, Sterling Lord, who pointed out that Kesey was just as deeply committed to living and experiencing the lives of others. Writing for him was just a part of living, whereas Kerouac was much more deeply committed to his writing in and of itself. And nor was the meeting with Timothy Leary much of a success either. Leary and the Eastern LSD scene were much more into the shamanic approach towards psychedelics, with mandalas and candles and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So it kind of killed their vibe when the pranksters came bouncing down their driveway one morning after a carefully planned LSD experiment the night before, and they woke up to this circus-like tangle of noise and colour. At this point, LSD wasn't quite yet illegal in America. It wasn't banned until 1966. So besides the philosophical few, most of the public were more ignorant towards acid than they were hostile towards the pranksters. And the legality of acid at this time allowed them, after their bus trip, to proceed to hosting massive acid tests at Kesey's home in California. They were called the acid tests because they were precisely that. They were tests into new forms of consciousness and cooperation and creativity that acid could take you to. And to bring in some more characters from previous episodes here, the Grateful Dead from the last episode were there in their early days, providing the music under their name The Warlocks. But everyone was involved, there was no stage. The dead would be down on the floor level playing alongside everyone else. And as their singer Jerry Garcia said, everyone there was as much performer as audience. And then, when their parties moved from Keezy's log cabin to big venues across America, there'd be huge light shows and a barrel filled with Kool-Aid in the centre, but laced with mind-bending quantities of LSD. And then finally, at these great acid tests, you see the rest of the characters pouring in through the woodworks of our previous episodes. Allen Ginsberg was in attendance, who was of course a key figure in the beats. Richard Alpert, who worked alongside Timothy Leary, was there. Even the Hells Angels, and the author of Fearing and Loathing Las Vegas, Hunter S. Thompson, who himself was responsible for bringing the Merry Pranksters and the Hells Angels together. Literally anyone who was anyone from the Beats and the 60s counterculture scene had something to do with the Merry Pranksters and their acid tests. Now, I've done a lot of research and a lot of reading in preparation for this episode, but I'm not sure that it's ever been made precisely clear what it was that Kesey was looking for in the bus trip and the acid tests, and exactly what it was that he thought himself to have found. I mean, Kesey literally said that the acid tests had, in his words, no specific goals. It was just discovering what there was out there. And to be honest, wherever you read about psychedelic experiences, although the subject really feels this profound sense of learning something really important about the world, they always seem to find it really difficult to express it in plain English. Now, this might have something to do with, as we mentioned in the last episode, the fact that the psychedelic experience is so different from our sober day-to-day experience of the world that there simply are no words that could describe the experience in a way that people who haven't had the experience could understand. But having said that, Kesey does say that he was looking for whatever there was out there, and it's clear that he did think that he'd found something. So as we've said, first and foremost, the acid tests really were a test, an experiment, and not everyone would pass the test. Kesey points out that there were people who passed, but there were also people that didn't. But one of the more tangible and practical lessons that we can take from the LSD experience, and presumably those who passed the acid tests would get this, is tolerance. We mentioned earlier this sense of oneness that you can achieve on LSD, the sense in which it breaks down the barriers between yourselves and those around you. And just as this can help develop one's sense of empathy, 
Kesey points out in a Daily Telegraph article entitled The Trip of a Lifetime that LSD allows you to transcend the idea of race, of sex, of species, and to see the humanity and the life in each and every one of us, and basically become more humane and understanding and, as I say, tolerant. And without wanting to get sidetracked on this point here, it's interesting to think about the tolerance effect in the context of today's political climate, in a culture on the West where everyone's so divided, and in which we're seeing the return of movements based on hate and isolationism and pure self-interest all over the world. And you do wonder whether a few cheeky doses of LSD might nudge some certain politicians towards having a bit more tolerance and empathy. So if there's one thing you can take from this episode, is that the best way to world peace is to spike world leaders' morning coffee with acid. But finally, as well as having some nice practical benefits, Kesey definitely thought that there were some kind of higher lessons to be taught by LSD. Kesey said in the same Daily Telegraph article that I've already mentioned in 1999, shortly before his death, that it hoped by this stage LSD would be being studied in colleges. But we keep on coming back to this point. If there were a class on the spiritual and existential lessons taught by LSD, what would these lessons be besides an attitude of oneness and tolerance? While I think Ken Kesey's focus himself was probably more on the practical side of his experiments with acid, and, and he really was a figurehead, a spokesman for acid, and he was all about bringing it to the public consciousness, I think for that reason we can maybe look elsewhere to find concrete accounts of the lessons that we can discover from psychedelics. Now in particular, Aldous Huxley, who we mentioned earlier in his essay The Doors of Perception, it has some really fascinating insights about his discoveries from mescaline. So just a bit of context on mescaline. It's another psychedelic drug, like LSD, but whereas LSD is chemically synthesised in the lab, mescaline's actually found naturally in the San Pedro and peyote cacti. And as a random side note for any fellow fans of the actor Michael Serra, he starred in this crazy low-budget film called Crystal Fairy and the Magic Cactus, which is all about him and a few friends going on a road trip down to Chile to find a San Pedro cactus. And the film culminates in a trip scene in which, apparently, Michael Cera and all the other actors had actually taken massive doses of mescaline. But the essay on mescaline, The Doors of Perception, is essentially 50% trip report, like a formal and old-fashioned version of trip reports you'll read today on Erowid and Reddit, and 50% philosophical speculation, about the metaphysical truths illuminated by the psychedelic experience on mescaline. The essay opens with the following quote from William Blake. If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. And this quote sums up in a nutshell the central thesis of the essay, which is that psychedelic drugs can open up our doors of perception to allow us to perceive the world as it really is, and not just through the narrow confines of our day-to-day perceptions. Now on this point, the more sceptical listeners among you might want to say something like, but Huxley, couldn't it just be the case that your altered state of consciousness is nothing more than an illusion, a hallucination? What's to say that we don't experience the world as it really is when we're sober? Now Huxley certainly wants to defend the view that the perceptions on mescaline aren't just hallucinations, they depict the world as it really is. And he actually gives a really interesting justification for this by appealing to evolution. So broadly, the theory of evolution states that species evolve to carry forward the traits that maximise their chances of survival. So the classic example is giraffes' long necks. The longer the neck, the more leaves they can eat from the top of the trees, the more likely they are to survive, and then the more likely these long-necked giraffes are to pass on their long-necked genes to their ancestors. 
And as generations go on and on and on, giraffes get longer and longer necks. And in a similar vein, Huxley argues that we humans have evolved to perceive the world in a way that's to our evolutionary advantage. We see the world through this kind of hunter-gatherer state of mind that allows us to detect predators and perform basic tasks necessary for our survival. But there's a whole world out there that, while it serves no evolutionary advantage, can maybe nevertheless be a massive source of truth. So by taking psychedelic drugs, we can open our mind and expand our consciousness to see beyond the merely evolutionarily advantageous, and see the world for what it really is. This thought from Huxley is actually remarkably similar to one of the ways in which Kesey described the psychedelic experience. Kesey described his whole revolution at aiming at freeing us from what he called a virus afflicting America. A virus that gives us this kind of hard-heartedness that paralyses our senses, so that all we see and experience is that which has already been pre-screamed and deemed permissible. Kesey thought that our lives and our experiences and our very consciousness had become too restricted, and the sense in which LSD can overcome this is precisely the same way that, for Huxley, mescaline allows the user to overcome the merely evolutionarily advantageous modes of perception. And so, when we open our doors of perception in this sense, we see the things in the world as they really are. On mescaline, for example, Huxley reported looking at books and flowers in his room, and not giving a monkeys about their size or shape or any other properties we'd ordinarily pick up on. What Huxley was preoccupied with was the raw meaning and being that he saw in them, their essence. And then when looking at a chair, Huxley expressed it really nicely by saying, the percept had swallowed up the concept. Now what this means is that while we normally see things in the world through the pre-existing concepts that we hold, like you can walk into Ikea and see a hundred different lamps on a shelf, but you'll still see them as the same category, lamp. But when he was on mescaline, these kinds of concepts had gone out the window, and he saw things as they really are, without this disposition to categorise them into these predefined concepts. And in that respect, it's kind of like going back to how you are as a child, and you experience things for the first time. You see them for their real selves, and not just as a replica of something you've already seen. Now, Huxley suggests that what we experience on mescaline is so vivid simply because it's free from these restrictions of our normal language and of our conceptual frameworks. And in this respect, maybe it's not at all surprising that people often struggle to put their psychedelic experiences into plain English, because as we've seen, their experiences are new and novel, and they're not linked to any of their prior experiences, so they're not linked to any of these words that they have in their repertoire. But you might say, very well, when we take psychedelics or have some kind of a psychedelic experience, we see the world as it really is. But what is the world as it really is? What can Huxley say to somebody who hasn't had a psychedelic experience to explain these truths about the world? As we've said, providing a precise analysis of the world as it really is with the doors of perception wide open is likely to be impossible, given that those who haven't had such an experience lack the words, and even the concepts to make sense of the words that we might use to describe these truths. But at the very least, one of the lessons that Huxley does pass on relates to what we said earlier about psychedelics opening you up to the oneness of the universe. Huxley describes humankind in a way that really resonates with me, as what he describes as a society of island universes. What Huxley means here is that each one of us has our own internal universe. We walk around in our finite bodies, but there's an infinity going on in our mind, 
there's literally a whole world that's absolutely isolated from anyone else, in the sense that I can walk up to you and touch your body, but I can never come into contact with or enter your mind. Each one of our personal universes is like an island surrounded by great impassable seas. But then, when we have a psychedelic experience, just as Wolf said earlier, we erode this distinction between the I and the not-I. It dissolves as we tap deeper into our island universe and discover what Huxley calls the mind at large, which is this underlying essence of human consciousness that's shared by each of us. Now, I am wary that when we talk about these kind of metaphysical insights that we might gain from the psychedelic experience, a lot of people are of the opinion that this is where our philosophy becomes more spiritual than, well, philosophical. It becomes less grounded in concrete reason and argument, and more in metaphor and fanciful speculation. But to be fair, the sense of oneness, and of some kind of a shared essence or a shared underlying consciousness, is not just something that's spurted out by Looney's tripping on acid. And this kind of message forms a key part of, for example, Buddhist philosophies. And equally, both Alan Watts and Carl Sagan have been known for saying words to the effect of you are the universe experiencing itself. It's a lovely quote this. The sentiment it's expressing is essentially that we're lumps of matter like anything else in the universe. But while trees wave in the winds, the water flows, what we do is think and experience. But, and for the same reasons as Tom Wolfe said earlier, we should stop using I to refer to ourselves and not the rest of the universe. We are just like everything else fulfilling its role as time passes, and as we fulfil our role, we experience ourself as part of the universe, and as the universe experiencing itself. Now to go into too much depth about this notion of universal oneness would be to get a bit sidetracked, but it's worth considering that if we were able to provide some kind of metaphysical justification here for the feelings of oneness and tolerance that psychedelics open our eyes to, then perhaps we'd be justified in saying that this sense of oneness and tolerance is an actual truth that LSD enlightens us to, rather than just merely an attitude or a feeling that we have when on psychedelics. But anyway, to return back to Ken Kesey, his acid tests and the lessons he was selling on a tab of LSD, his revolution had a massive effect on America. Their boss trip was in 1964, and within just a year of this, Owsley, who was another frequenter of his acid tests, was selling literally industrial levels of LSD across the country. Within three years, you saw the Summer of Love in 1967, where 100,000 young hipsters came together to get stoned and hang out in San Francisco. And to this day, even Jarvis Cocker, who's the singer of Pulp, described the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test book as a literary gateway drug that opened him up to new ways of perceiving the world. But ultimately, if we're going to take what Kesey's shown us and what Huxley's taught us, and what we found in the glory of an acid test taken away with us, and to use it to make a positive and long-lasting effect, we need to move beyond acid. Take Timothy Leary's famous quote from the last episode, for example. We need to turn on, tune in, drop out. Meaning that, sure, we need to open our minds, open our doors of perception to the truths out there. We need to turn ourselves on and tune in. But once we've figured it out, once we've seen what the psychedelic experience is showing us, we need to drop out. I spoke in the beginning of this episode about how Steve Jobs was heavily influenced by psychedelic trips, and there are many more people who've had similarly life-changing experiences. But equally, I could sit here and reel off names all day of people who have abused drugs and come out damaged on the other side, or not ever even come out at all. 
And this is exactly what I think Ken Kesey was alluding to when he told his band of merry pranksters and his great swathes of followers across America to move beyond acid. You see, by 1966, Kesey's antics had started to catch up with him. And although it was the CIA themselves who had got Kesey started on acid, the establishment were beginning to realise that his vision posed a massive threat to order and obedience across America. In January 66, Kesey was facing charges of marijuana possession and facing likely jail time. Just like the trial of Socrates in ancient Greece, I think it was likely not just the crime itself he was being charged for, but more than that for his general subversiveness and corrupting effect on the youth. So Kesey devised a plan. He wrote a fake suicide note and found a friend who looked enough like him to dress up in his clothes, drive a truck into Oregon, and find a nice big tree by a cliff face to crash into. Kesey's friend was then to leave his boots by the shore, so it looked like Kesey had dove into the sea, never to return. And meanwhile on this night, Kesey took a ride down to Mexico where he lived as a fugitive. But this wasn't to be where the story ends for Kesey, he was merely biding his time in Mexico. So having flummoxed the American cops by faking his suicide and fleeing, he planned one last big prank, which was to sneak back into America and show up at the big acid test parties and rallies. The plan being that he was to appear just for a moment, just about long enough for everyone to realise what's going on, and disappearing just before the cops could get their hands on him. So Kesey made his big move in early October 66, when he actually managed to get a TV interview with a San Francisco journalist, the great fugitive on the run beamed into every house across America and said, I intend to stay in this country as a fugitive and assault in J. Edgar Hoover's wounds. And it was just about this time that the law finally caught up with him and he was pleading his case to the courthouse. So Kesey was now fighting two separate charges of marijuana possession as well as a charge of unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. But to earn himself bail, Kesey played his Beyond Acid trump card. Kesey sold the courthouse the idea that he had seen the dangers of drugs, the terrible things it could do, and he was ready to stand up and show America that there's a better life than bumming around on drugs. There's a world beyond acid. Now, Kesey didn't really mean what he said in the way that he said it, but there was a large nugget of truth in what he said. Kesey really did believe in moving beyond acid. This didn't mean, like he sold it to the courthouse, abandoning acid altogether. But it does mean recognising that you can't spend your whole life high, and if you want to make something substantial out of your experiences, you need to find a way of applying it to your sober life. There's no point in walking through the doors of perception, feeling briefly enlightened, walking back through the door again and going back through it again and again and again. Whatever lessons are out there, you've got to nail them down and find a way to live by them. So it's on this basis, after getting bail, the Kesey organised the Merry Prankster's final big blowout, the Acid Test Graduation, in October 1968. It was their last big acid test, their last big party, but with one catch, there was no acid. This was a huge milestone. The graduation confronted the acid generation with two possibilities. Firstly, they could learn to move beyond acid and see their revolution through. Or secondly, they could fail to keep their doors of perception open permanently, and limit themselves to merely fleeting moments of enlightenment on acid trips. And I think unfortunately the latter is actually how the story ends. This is where the trail runs cold with Kesey. Moving beyond acid, Kesey just didn't have as much to say. And shortly after the acid test graduation, 
He spent his six months in prison before essentially retiring with a select few pranksters on his Oregon farm. For anyone interested in the psychedelic 60s, there is an absolutely brilliant book that I touched on earlier, and film starring Johnny Depp by Hunter S. Thompson called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. The film's set in 1971, just when this revolution had run its course, and one of the great crescendos in the book lies in what's come to be known as the wave speech. So in it, Thompson reflects on everything they tried to achieve to revolutionise in the 60s, and how they couldn't quite grasp it. I really wanted to sample Johnny Depp's performance of the speech in the movie in this episode, but didn't want to take any risks with copyright, and it's kind of long to read myself, it's about two minutes long. But after Thompson writes about the energy of San Francisco in the 60s, how they felt they were winning, this sense of inevitable victory, and how Thompson said they were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave, Thompson ends this wave speech by writing, So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west, and with the right kind of eyes you can almost see the high watermark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. I'd really suggest that after listening to this podcast, you find the wave speech on YouTube and give it a listen. It's beautiful. And there's something so poignant about the imagery of seeing the place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. As we know, in virtue of being alive in 2019, acid didn't change the world. The metaphysics of LSD isn't taught in schools, and we didn't find a way of radically reimagining society. But even if the wave broke, there was something there. The height of the wave saw hundreds of thousands of young visionaries coming together in California. Not just to get high, but to change the world. You can look at their opposition to the Vietnam War as an example of how the state of mind facilitated by psychedelics can bring love and tolerance to the world in a substantial and constructive way. And the kind of attitudes and truths that we've looked at that can be reached through the psychedelic experience, so unity, tolerance, and grasping the essence of being, these aren't things that can only be experienced through psychedelic drugs. These kind of ideas have a life beyond the psychedelic experience. And as I mentioned earlier, schools of thought such as Buddhism embody similar kinds of attitudes. The acid revolution might not have had quite enough momentum to push it over the edge, but it did show us that there's a world out there, truths to be discovered and worlds to be explored within the infinity of our own consciousness, if we open ourselves to the psychedelic experience and see where it takes us. Perhaps that ammunition might be enough for us to take the lessons that the 1960s taught us and carry the torch forward into the future. So, thanks for listening today, and if you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to like and subscribe, and leave a rating and a review if your podcast app of choice allows you to do so. And until then, I'll see you in the first Monday of August, in which our next episode, we'll look at Aldous Huxley through a completely different lens. We'll look at his novel Brave New World, and the themes of freedom and happiness that it evokes. And until then, I'll see you next time. Thank you.